Uh, I'd now like to welcome uh, Danny Campos to read today's scripture. Uh, and after he reads, I will be back for today's teaching. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, once heard, the poet and writer, Maya Angelou, reflecting on how she often goes about trying to make a decision. Uh, the way that she does it sometimes is she will imagine her grandmother uh, saying this to her, saying, just do right. Doing right might not be expedient and it might not be profitable, but it will always satisfy your soul. Now, of course, Angelou, uh, when saying this, was saying to her, uh, her hearers, you know, that despite what may or may not come, we ought to always do right. Do right anyway. Right? Doing right, according to Angelou, it will provide a fulfillment and a satisfaction that cannot be achieved any other way. Uh, and she's absolutely correct about that. You know, if you want to be a miserable person or you want to be a miserable person to be around, always do what is expedient or profitable. Uh, that is a surefire way to make sure that you harden your soul and alienate everyone around you. And so in this way, yes, absolutely, she is correct. Just do right. But I want to push her idea even further to say that for the Christian, the satisfaction that comes by doing right ought to be exponentially greater than otherwise. Since doing right, from the Christian perspective, means obeying the one who has called you to do what is right. See, from the Christian perspective, to just do right equates to obedience to God's purposes. Obedience is right. And obedience to God's will is what brings satisfaction to the soul. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we've been in a series that we've called Marked for Joy, which has been a, a slow walk through the book of Philippians. Uh, in essence, Philippians is about the Christian life. Uh, and more specifically, it's about the, how the Christian life ought to be marked by joy in all circumstances. But here's what's interesting about that idea. In regards to obedience, I wonder, do we equate obedience with joy? Because uh, it seems to me that by definition, obedience assumes submission to some law or thought or belief uh, that we might not otherwise desire to submit to, except for the fact that we're being made to. Uh, to just do right means doing something that we might not otherwise want to do, except that we're being told to do it. I mean, why do laws exist in our society? I mean, they exist... Because at some point, 
we realize that unless we write down that which we believe to be ideal and then require everyone to submit themselves to those ideals, we would likely never collectively hold that ideal as valuable. You know, as an example, in New York City, there are vision zero laws that limit the speed uh, in cars of, to 25 miles per hour. Now, why? Well, it's because people are not going to drive under 25 miles an hour unless they are under the threat of punishment. And so they submit. Uh, another uh, interesting law that we just, we all submit to. Uh, we all have, there are laws about paying our taxes. Because without those laws, who in their right mind is thinking about sending money to the government? But under the threat of punishment, we submit to the law and we pay our taxes. Now, of course, to just do right by obeying speed limit laws or paying taxes, it's not going to produce joy. But rather, those kinds of laws, they do tend to produce complaining and grumbling. And honestly, like, who could blame us? But from the Christian perspective, for the Christian, God's law ought not to be viewed this way. I mean, yes, God tells us to just do right, to obey. But even more so, here's what we have to see, is that God just doesn't just tell us to do right. God says, just do right joyfully. And today, here in Philippians 2, I want to consider what that means. What does it mean to not just do right, but to do right joyfully? I want to consider that today by looking at three things. I want to take a look at first at the call to just do right, the posture to just do right, and then finally the power to just do right. So first, the call to just do right. Verses 12 and 13 of our passage gives us essentially our call to just do right. I mean, simply put, it is a call to obedience. Let me reread that for us. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, this passage over the years uh, has certainly been at the heart of some controversy, specifically because Paul uses language here that does seem to contradict himself. Uh, what I mean by that is, what exactly does Paul mean when he says that we ought to work out our salvation? What does that mean? Uh, and what does it mean, especially when you consider Paul other statements of Paul in passages like Ephesians 2, where we're told that it is by grace we are saved, not through works. Right? So if works cannot save you, then what does Paul mean that we must work out our salvation? Well, if you remember uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the different ways that Paul talks about salvation. Uh, he talks about it in the past tense, in the present tense, in the future tense, and he uses other words like justification and sanctification and glorification, all of which sit under the umbrella of this term salvation. Now here in verse 12 and 13, what Paul is emphasizing is that second element of salvation, which is sanctification, which is the Christian growing more and more to be like Jesus. 
So in other words, sanctification is learning to just do right. It's learning to obey. And that ability to just do right is possible because according to verse 13, it is God who works it in us in order to accomplish his good purposes for us. Uh, one commentator, when considering this dynamic, puts it this way, that were it not for the fact that God is working in you, you would not be able to work out your own salvation. In other words, God makes it possible for us to just do right. Think about it this way, you know, a toaster cannot produce toast unless it is connected to electricity. Uh, there can be no light in a room unless electricity flows through the light bulb. Of course, that electricity coming from an energy source. Or to put it in Jesus' words in John 15, he says that I am the branch, or as the branch cannot bear fruit um, of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Right? So this whole idea is that God uh, produces what is necessary for us to actually obey him. And so to work out your own salvation is to grow in obedience by the power of the Spirit that works in us. So that's, that's this call. We are called to obey as God empowers us and grows us to do so. But the other thing, and this is where we want to really uh, spend our time uh, focusing is the posture with which we go about doing right, the posture with which we obey. With all this in mind about what God does in us in producing this obedience, the question then really must be this. What is your posture toward working out your own salvation? Meaning, what is your posture to the call to just do right? How do you understand and view obedience. Now Paul in this passage is speaking about the necessity of obedience, but there's a, a, essentially two ways that we can approach obedience. And we will fall into one of these two categories. We can either approach obedience begrudgingly, or we can approach it voluntarily. In verse 14, uh, after calling them, uh, calling his readers to obedience, Paul then says that this obedience, in this obedience, he says, do everything, right? Do this obedience, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Uh, when I was a kid, probably five or six or so, I distinctly remember a time when I attempted to rebel a little bit uh, without actually rebelling. If you know me, um, you know, um, it's not really in my nature to rebel. Uh, it's not something I, I do. But my parents wanted me, essentially, this was, this was the scenario. We were at the dinner table and my parents wanted me to say, may I please be excused before I got up from the dinner table. Now, at the time, this was a new concept for me and I thought it was really dumb. And so I refused to say it. Uh, and as a result, they made me sit at the table for a really long time until I was willing to say it. I don't know how long I was there. It felt like three hours. It could have been 10 minutes. Who knows? Uh, Five-year-old brains just work differently. But after a, what felt like an eternity, I finally broke and I just said, may I be excused so that I could get up and leave. But of course, inside, 
even though externally I was saying, may I be excused, internally I was saying, I don't want to say this, this is dumb. Now, why did I do that? Well, it was solely for the purpose of avoiding this continued punishment. Right? I obeyed with grumbling. In this, however, and especially in the context of God's call to obedience, is not what we are called to do. Even though there are numerous commands that we might not want anything to do with. I mean, the bottom line is simply this. That God is not interested in our begrudging submission. He is not interested in us on the outside saying, may I be excused, while on the inside we're saying, this is dumb. You know, with other laws <clears throat> that we experience in life, that is fine. You know, the NYPD doesn't care if you begrudgingly submit to, their, to the speed limit laws. Uh, the IRS doesn't care if you begrudgingly submit to tax law. They just expect you to submit. But this is not sufficient for the Christian, period. And here is why. To just do right begrudgingly assumes one of two motivations for us actually approaching obedience. You know, the one would be what we've already said. Uh, it's to avoid punishment. You know, I don't want to sit at the table anymore. I don't want a speeding ticket. I don't want to get audited. And so I obey. And of course, we absolutely treat God's law in the same way. I will obey God's law because I just I don't want to be punished or have him come after me or something. But the other reason why we might approach um, obedience is that we begrudgingly approach it expecting that because we have obeyed, God then in some way owes me something as a result. I expect him to now bless me in return for having done what he told me to do. And boy, oh boy, do we do this all the time. This plays out in so many different ways. You know, just to give you some examples, some easy examples. You know, for one example, God uh, commands his people uh, to give of their resources uh, and to give generously. And as one example of giving your resources, we believe in the concept of the tithe, uh, which is essentially the minimum of what we're called to give out of our income in order to, to give to the work of the kingdom, whatever that, wherever that might be, whatever that might look like. It's a biblical principle of giving 10% of our income. Now, I might not want to give, but when I give, do I give expecting that then God will give me in some way more than what I gave, or that he would bless me all the more for having given this tithe? Do I expect blessing or favor or prosperity as a result? I mean, this is fundamentally the baseline expectation of something that's called the prosperity gospel, that if I give generously to God, God will then give generously back to me. And so even though I might not want to give, I give in, in expectation that he will in return give me even greater things. Another example that I have seen uh, over the years is that for some, maybe there's a desire for particular kinds of relationships or uh, even a spouse. And now just to say that is a good and right thing to desire and even pray for. But one example that I have seen is that when people in these relationships, in dating relationships in particular, maybe they pursue things like sexual purity within the dating relationship, which is good and right and honors God, it's a command of God, 
what is the expectation of having submitted to God's, uh, God's commands in those ways? Is the expectation that God is then obligated to provide for me the kind of relationship that I desire because I have submitted to his law in these kinds of ways? I mean, there's a hundred different ways that this can play out. You know, if I'm honest at work, I expect promotion and raises. If I live justly for the good of the downtrodden, I expect accolades and respect and honor. You know, if I raise my family in the church and I acknowledge, or I, in, raise them in the church and in the knowledge of God's word, I expect my family to then be successful. It's this idea of I will submit to God's will, I will submit to God's obedience if he would then just give me what I want. Now, I will just say as a side note, there is something to say about obedience uh, providing us certain measures of success, meaning that God's ways are superior to all other ways. And so, in a sense, uh, there very might well be a measure of success that happens because we're living in line with his creative purposes for the world. I want to acknowledge that's certainly the case. But we must see that God is not looking for obedience as a means of avoiding punishment or as a means of attaining some sort of blessing or putting him in our obligation. The reason being that that is the case is that God is not seeking begrudging submission, but rather he is looking for your heart. He is looking for your affection. He is looking for your trust in him. And our posture to just do right says everything about where our heart's affections lie and what ultimately has our trust. You know, the alternative to what I've just described is to say, God, I love you, I trust you, and as a result, I will obey you and trust your will. I trust that you know far more than I know. I trust that you hold the future. I trust that you want what is best for me. I trust that even when I cannot see good reasons to obey you, that you are worthy of my obedience. I mean, do you see the different kind of posture that's there with that type of obedience? But my friends, that, this is why obedience ought to be joyous. Because obedience from this perspective means that we've got this full trust in the will of God. You know, hearken back to uh, Angelou's statement, this is why to just do right satisfies the soul. When we trust God, his will and his purposes, we will find our greatest satisfaction. I mean, this is going to be now the third time in the series that I will again remind us of the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which states that the chief end of man, our purpose in life, is to glorify God. And obedience born out of trust glorifies God. And as a result, gives us full and complete satisfaction because that is our great purpose in life. And so the posture means everything about what this obedience ought to be in our lives. It reveals to us who has our hearts, who has our affections, who has our trust. Now I know for some, the question of course then is, well, if obedience is connected to trusting God, how do I know that I can trust him? 
why is it that we ought to obey out of love and not compulsion? From where, to our final point, do we get the power to be able to do such a thing, to trust the promises of God? Well, to see that, I want us to see the full train of thought in Philippians 2. You know, one of the challenges of going through a book of the Bible section by section is that we can sometimes lose the full train of thought that might be going on in a particular uh, passage uh, or chapter. But what's interesting is look at the very first word of verse 12. What's that word? That very first word is, therefore. Now, I've said this before, but in the words of my preacher grandfather, whenever you see a therefore, you better find out what it's there for. Why is therefore there? Well, the obedience that we just unpacked is dependent on something that was described before the therefore. And what was it? Well, of course, last week we took a look at this quite a bit, but in the first half of Philippians 2, Paul unpacks this idea that Christians ought to be humble because they have the mind of Christ, a mind which exemplifies humility. For Christ, the all-powerful one, God himself laid aside his authority and became a man, a servant, a servant that would lay down his life uh, for us in order to make those who were his enemies now his friends. And as a result of everything that Paul describes that Jesus does for us, he then says, Therefore, obey. We obey because God in Christ has proven himself trustworthy in the work of Jesus. Jesus is why you ought to obey. Period. In the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the, the, before Jesus was uh, to go to the cross, we see the obedience of Jesus on full and complete display but we see the way that this obedience is deeply connected to his trust and how that then impacts the way that we approach it. So Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was struggling with the death that was to come. The experience of death was, that was to come, he was wrestling with it, uh, wrestling with his own obedience to the will of the Father. And in that moment of wrestling, he prays the famous prayer where he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. I mean, that is Jesus saying, Father, I don't want to do this, but obedience, and obedience right now is really hard, but I trust you. And above all else, not my will, but yours be done. I will be obedient because I trust you. And that act of obedience by Jesus Obedience born out of trust is what makes your acts of obedience possible. All other motivations pale in comparison to that kind of motivation. You know, in Jesus, we do not obey to avoid punishment since he took punishment for our disobedience on the cross. In Jesus, we do not obey to attain blessings because as Ephesians 1 tells us, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven as a result of what Jesus has done. Punishment and blessings are not sufficient reasons to obey because neither ultimately apply to the Christian anymore. Punishment is gone. Blessings have been poured out. Rather, out of love for our Savior, 
the one who has proven himself trustworthy, it is for that reason we just do right. Because we know he has proven himself to be good. He has proven that he wants what is best for us. And this is where we get the power to just do right, to trust what Jesus has done, trust the Spirit of God that works in us. And as we do that, friends, we will experience that full and complete satisfaction because it's leading us to a deeper trust in God himself. Now, the very last thing that I want us to see uh, is in verse 15. Let me read for you that passage quickly. Paul says, All of this, and then he says, So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without faults in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. The last thing I want to leave you with quickly is this. Obedience born out of grumbling is not a light to the world because it makes faith in Christ seem miserable. Obedience born out of self-preservation is not light in the world because it makes Christians self-oriented and unloving to others. Obedience out of selfish gain is not a light to the world because it makes Christians greedy and self-righteous. But obedience out of love and trust is a light to the world because it puts on full display the glory of God, a glory that you were created to make known. And so just do right and do it joyfully because of what Christ has done and see the way that it becomes a draw for all people your obedience can be light in the world when we do so out of this love and trust for our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, God, first we thank you for your law and we thank you for the ways that you uh, call us to obey that law. For That law is what uh, we were created to, to live. Um, it is where we find uh, all that you desire in this world. And so thank you for the grace of your law. And we also thank you, Lord, uh, for Jesus, the one who proves to us that we can trust that your law is good and that your commands are good. And I pray that you would help us, by the work of your Spirit, look upon Jesus and find uh, our hope and our trust there. And as we find our hope and our trust there, it then leads us to obey not because we have to, not because we're avoiding punishment, not because we think we'll then get something extra from you as a result, but doing it solely out of a deep love and trust of our Savior, trusting that you desire what is best for us. Would you help us do this, Lord, by the work of your Spirit? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.